Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, which was recorded prior to the updated masking and isolation recommendations released by the CDC on August 11th, pediatric infectious diseases physicians Dr. Buddy Creech of Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Dr. Andrea Shane of Emory University School of Medicine discuss COVID-19's impact on the school year ahead. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Dr. Shane, with many families heading back to school now and throughout the coming weeks, can you give us an overview of where things stand with the COVID-19 pandemic? We really have seen a lot of change happening over time. One of the biggest challenges is that we currently seem to be in a a surge in many places in the country. And this is really, I think, going to be the pattern of what we're going to expect over time, that we're going to see surges We're going to see increases in cases that will peak in various places at different times and then subside. I think it's also important to remember now that with lots of home testing and availability of testing outside of formal structures, that there probably are more cases that are uh, being detected than are actually being recorded. Although I do think that the pattern of what we're seeing with increases and decreases probably truly represents where we are with COVID-19 at the moment. While COVID-19 is still very much a concern, as you just said, we're seeing surges in many parts of the country, it seems to be less a part of the national conversation than it was when students were going back to school last fall. Dr. Shane, what do you think schools and families need to have in mind as they start this new school year? Should children be wearing masks at school? Should there be social distancing measures in place? What things should we be doing? One of the big issues is that uh, we talk about COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 as as one virus, but what we really know that over time with the emergence of variants, we've seen different clinical manifestations, we've seen surges, we've seen other clinical manifestations in children that go beyond mild symptoms. We've seen MISC, which is a post-infectious inflammatory syndrome, as well as long COVID. So we're learning as we go along, and we've seen lots of different variations, so to speak, of this virus. And so I think where we are at this point is really a time to go back to basics and really focusing on how we can continue to have children in school, but also have it be a safe and healthy environment. I think it's also important to remember that we've, especially in the last several months, we've seen a surge in viruses that we don't typically see at this time of the year. Uh, For example, influenza in the summer, and we've had an RSV season that really hasn't been a season, but rather just continued continued prevalence of of RSV uh, throughout many months. So really what my advice is, is we have to think about how we can keep children who are having symptoms at home and isolating and children who are well able to be in school. And that's also thinking about hand hygiene really as a mainstay of infection prevention. And I think that while we focused a lot on masking, which is really an important way of preventing transmission of SARS-CoV-2, we have to remember the importance of hand hygiene. And so hand washing, use of alcohol-based hand sanitizing gels, really key foundation of infection prevention. In terms of masking, the recommendations really are based on what transmission is 
in the local community. And so we also have to remember, in addition to preventing the transmission of SARS-CoV-2, masks also have some role in preventing the transmission of other viruses that are transmitted via droplets. So really masking has become a very personal decision. And I think that that is fine. And uh, it's important that we think about that. And there may be some times where masking is important and sometimes where masking may be less important. The key issues though are with everything, uh, it's important to do it correctly. And so masking, covering mouth and nose at all times, a mask that's comfortable for children and making sure that they know how to take it on and off without contaminating themselves is, is also uh, extremely important. But uh, I think if we can adhere to hand hygiene, masking, and in some situations, we may have to implement physical distancing, although that is very challenging in a school environment. You know, those are things that we can continue to do to keep schools safe and ensure that children are in a safe environment and a safe learning environment. Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Flechwayo Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials, research articles, and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network forward slash COVID health equity resources. Dr. Creech, let's talk about pediatric COVID-19 vaccines. What would you say to parents who believe that the cases in children aren't severe enough or frequent enough to warrant having their children vaccinated? I think it's a really important question because it gets to the individual sense of risk and how we process that and how we consider the safety or the riskiness of something. I don't anticipate that I'm going to have a car accident on the way home. And if I do have a car accident, it is more likely than not that it will be a mild fender bender and it will be more of an annoyance than something that could be fatal to me. I will still wear my seatbelt. Um, it is what we do when we cannot predict when that risk becomes a very small number to then becoming a very real number to us individually. We do that in a lot of different things. We do that when we take our daily medicines. We do that when we get insurance policies. We're used to doing that. For some reason, when it comes to vaccination, some people are using a different risk calculator, it feels like, or a different way to process that. And Maybe I would just encourage to, to consider thinking about it like we do other things. The, the vaccines that we have for children and adults, pregnant women, are remarkably safe. They are remarkably effective at preventing severe disease uh, and preventing the mortality that we saw early in the pandemic. And it's one of the reasons that we can even have this type of podcast where we talk about what it looks like to be on this side of the pandemic. And yet we know that the majority of children in our country have not yet been fully vaccinated. And that's partly because parents still have some lingering concerns. But I think it's important to recognize that we have options. We have had tens and hundreds of millions of children around the world be vaccinated against COVID using these mRNA-based vaccines. Therefore, we have a lot of confidence in, in what we should do with them. What we know is they prevent severe disease. What we know is they can prevent transmission to high-risk family members that kids live with. What we know is that they can contribute to reducing the burden of disease in the community. Gosh, that sounds like a whole lot 
like flu prevention that we always do every year when pediatricians recommend flu vaccine for children. Do a lot of children die of influenza? Thankfully, no, in part because they're vaccinated and in part because children navigate the infection fairly well. And yet year after year, my kids are vaccinated for flu. I think the same is true for COVID. Thankfully, the complications are uncommon, but they are not zero. And therefore, vaccines stand as the best way to prevent not just hospitalization, not just death, but things like heart inflammation or myocarditis, things like blood clots that come with COVID infection, things like long COVID, and then again, the other things like transmitting within a household, transmitting to others, and then creating an extra burden of disease in the community. Should children alone be vaccinated? No, we're all in this together. And this is one way that we can stand together to get through this pandemic. Dr. Creech, you said that COVID-19 vaccines are safe for children. Can you expand on that and tell us a little bit more about what we know in terms of their safety? Oh, this is like my favorite thing in the world, right? So for the purpose of conflicts of interest, Evan Anderson at Emory and Vladimir Batode at Meharry and I led the Moderna pediatric study and work with the NIH. So I have a bit of a, I guess, a bias there that I'll just, I'll just mention to say that what we did is we first made sure the vaccine was safe and effective in adults. That's where the burden of disease was. That's where the highest mortality was. And early on, I think we wondered, are kids going to even need a vaccine? And as the pandemic progressed, and as Andy just said, when, when we saw different variants come along that began to infect children and cause disease that we were more used to as pediatricians, like wheezing and runny noses and pneumonia, the things that we typically see with respiratory viruses, we knew we were going to have to have a vaccine available for children, not just for the high-risk children, but especially for them. And so what we did is we did this strategy where you start in the older teenagers and then the older school age kids and then the younger preschool kids and then the infants. And we just marched our way down as, as we found out that the vaccine was truly safe and that the side effects mirrored what we saw in adults, a sore arm, a little fever, maybe a little fatigue the next day. And I can tell you as a principal investigator, as a pediatrician and as a parent, I've never had a parent complain that their child took a little bit extra long of a nap the next day after vaccination, right? So we list it as a side effect, but come on, it's an okay one. We haven't seen, you know, the uncertain or the scary or the severe side effects that, that maybe we were all looking for. Like may we, maybe we induce inflammation in these children that wouldn't be good. We haven't seen that. Maybe we'll see myocarditis in infants and young children. We haven't seen that. So I think this is an important piece for parents and pediatricians alike to understand that because we did this very methodically and very carefully, because we enrolled thousands upon thousands of children, and every time they sneezed too hard, we asked more questions about the safety of these vaccines. And because we worked really hard to find that, that sort of Goldilocks dose where we give just enough that it creates a good immune response, but not so much that it causes a lot in the way of fever and achiness and other vaccine side effects, we really think we've been able to do a remarkable job getting this vaccine into pediatricians' hands and it, to be a tool for parents to use to protect their children and protect their families. I happen to sit on a group that is funded through the CDC to look at all of our vaccine safety, and I can tell you that we continue to see the benefits of this vaccine and the safety of this vaccine as we've vaccinated more and more young children. I know that none of us has a crystal ball, but Dr. Shane, what do you think the school year ahead might look like? 
was uh, vaccine safety is uh, Buddy's favorite question. This is probably my least favorite question, but predicting what the school year will look like is, is one thing. But what I think we really encourage people to do, and many of us in the pediatric infectious disease community have been working with school boards and teachers and school associations, is to be prepared and to have some guidance and some preset ideas about if this, then that. And I think we all have the same idea. We want children to be able to remain in school settings safely. We know the benefits of school are incredibly important, and we've seen the consequences of not having in-person school. But we also, at the same time, want to make sure that it is a safe environment. So making sure the foundation, as many people as possible, are vaccinated, that includes teachers, that includes students, the adherence to hand hygiene, the adherence to masking, if appropriate, and then also making sure that anybody who has any symptoms really is not in the school environment. And that is really a basic tenant of preventing the spread of any infectious disease or, or any pathogen. And I think if we can adhere to those key foundational aspects, we'll have a fantastic school year. And we will have children remaining in school, teachers being able to teach, children being able to participate in extracurricular activities, and really we'll be back to at least what we consider to be as close to, I know people hate this word, but normal as possible. And we really have an opportunity here and it depends on every one of us, every one of us every day as we're deciding how we teach our children what they need to do at school, and also how we decide what we do as well to try to engender those practices in the household. I, I think Andy's right, because I, I think we're at a point in the pandemic now where for this fall, I think we're going to see the return of extracurricular activities. I think this focus on social distancing is going to maybe fall by the wayside now that we have vaccines that can protect us. We have treatment options for many of our children and for our adults. And we see a variant that is incredibly transmissible, but thankfully we're seeing relatively mild disease, particularly among those that are vaccinated and, and boosted. So I think we're actually gonna see a lot more of what we're used to with a couple of tweaks. One of them, I think, is going to be that when we see local waves and local increases in case counts, rather than shutting things down, we're just going to cover things up. And we're going to start probably having periods of time where we go through a week, two weeks, three weeks of individual schools or individual classrooms masking more than at other times because they're responding to local threats of influenza, RSV, or COVID-19. But as it relates to being able to actually do the things that we know children, teachers, parents, and communities alike benefit from, I think we're really close to being able to get back to that point where we can begin to do that with a bit more confidence. Well, that is very encouraging. Dr. Creech, do you anticipate that we'll be offering booster shots for children this fall? Well, keep in mind, we already are. For older children, they are already eligible for those third doses that are really important because we, we're vaccinating very quickly to get folks immune, right? We're giving a vaccine about three or four weeks apart, which admittedly is really quick when we want a durable, long-lasting immune response. So we're coming back with that third dose to really remind our immune system, yeah, we really need you to lay down an imprint of this so that you don't forget it. What I think is going to be interesting about this fall is that for our younger children, 
we may start to see some recommendations for third doses of Moderna, for instance. We already know we need three doses of Pfizer for those younger children because the dose is so low. But I don't think it's going to be probably until the end of the calendar year before we start to see some Omicron-specific boosters for our children. I think we're going to see those in adults first. Those studies are underway right now for children. But I think it's really important for providers, for really our whole communities to understand that we don't just change the vaccine without evaluating it. We don't just study one vaccine and then kind of sneak in there and change it a bunch and then release that one to the public. We've really got to do our due diligence that when we make even small modifications, we're going to put that through its paces so that when we take that to parents, when we take that to our colleagues, we can say, you can trust this because it's been evaluated rigorously. That's still going on. So I suspect that it's going to be at least the end of the calendar year before our, especially our youngest children are getting Omicron or next variant specific boosters. I have one last question for both of you. COVID-19 is obviously not the only infectious disease that impacts children. You've both already mentioned things like influenza, RSV. So what else should families and schools be doing to prepare for a healthy school year? And I have to ask in particular, what do families and schools need to know about the current monkeypox outbreak? Oh, I'll go ahead and start and then have Freddie chime in. I've mentioned some of the the key issues and the key prevention strategies. I would also just like to mention that we do take care of a lot of children who have chronic medical conditions and immunocompromising conditions. And so especially to parents of, of children in those particular situations, I would say that this may be an opportunity to speak to your child's teacher and make sure that they're aware of some of those conditions if there should be a situation where they may, for example, be placed at, at greater risk. And so that's always important, I think, both for teachers and also we have a tremendous uh, community in our school nurses who are just have been fabulous throughout this outbreak. And so making sure that the school nurses are aware if there are any special considerations for children who may have underlying medical conditions that may place them at increased risk. We've obviously had a lot of questions about monkeypox, and we also have had a lot of questions about transmission. And thankfully, so far, as of August 9th, the number of children who have been affected by monkeypox, at least in the United States, is much, much lower than adults. But as we know from other infectious diseases, including COVID, that doesn't mean that children won't be affected. So it's important that parents and teachers and, and children also have a high level of vigilance. And this is an opportunity, too, where parents can remind children about the importance of hand hygiene and also if another child has lesions to not have contact with them or if they do have contact with them to make sure that they uh, do appropriate hand washing or hand hygiene afterwards. And whether or not those lesions are monkeypox or varicella or Willis and Batigo, I'm just trying to think of all the things that we have been seeing that are not monkeypox. Just in, in general, it's really a good idea to remind children about the importance of not having contact with other people's open lesions. Yeah, I, I wish we could treat monkeypox a little bit like Bruno and simply say that we don't we don't talk about Bruno, but we just don't have that luxury. And you know, the best advice that we have right now is the best way to prevent our children from getting monkeypox is not to get monkeypox ourselves. It has been an epidemic that has not yet been fully felt among children, which is good. I think we have to be ready for that. I think we have to be prepared for that. And so schools preparing 
for outbreaks, you don't actually have to know what the outbreak is. You can begin to get communication structures in place. You can have champions in place that are typically the school nurse or others with some familiarity in this area to be able to think through infection prevention strategies and other, especially again, communication strategies so that parents have more information than less. We have, we have a saying on our team that clarity is kindness and being able to clearly communicate in these times is, is one of those things that I think parents really value. So I think that's one of the first things that schools can do is have plans in place that are somewhat pathogen or disease agnostic. I think the second thing is to realize this is why Andy and I went into infectious diseases and why many of us do it is that we know that we are one flight, one sneeze, one rash away from an outbreak beginning. And because of that, we want to be able to be prepared uh, no matter what the pathogen is. We know there's always another one around the corner, whether it's swine flu or bird flu or monkey flu or bat flu, it, it simply doesn't matter. Being exposed to and experiencing infectious diseases is about as human a thing as we can get. Now the question is, can we move quickly enough when those enter into our schools, into our communities, to be able to follow the science, to be able to provide good recommendations to families and communities and schools? And, and can we do what's necessary to stop them in their tracks before they become a huge issue? This is where ID docs and scientists and pharmacists and nurses and all stand in that gap to make that happen. And so, as Andy said a minute ago, we're, we're all in this together. And, and this is yet another chance going into the fall to prove that, whether it's for COVID, monkeypox, flu, or any number of infections that may reemerge over the next few years. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Creech and Shane for their participation, time, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on COVID-19. I'm Amanda Jezek. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.